Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We have been uh, walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. This is your reminder. If you're just joining us on this series, we've been looking for the good life and learning uh, what that is based on the perspective of King Solomon. So in a sense, we're kind of sitting with Grandpa King Solomon on the porch as he's pouring out buckets of wisdom about what life is all about. And so there's a lot happening today. That's all I'm going to give you for intro. Let's just jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Chapter 7. It says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Your challenge this week is to use the word mirth in a sentence. I don't think you're going to do it. What, he, what he's saying is, and this is kind of hard, death is better than birth? What's the summary of, of what this is saying? Because it's trying to say that somehow death is better than birth. What he's saying is, is mourning is better than feasting and sorrow is better than laughter. What does that mean? He's saying you don't learn a whole lot at a house party, but a funeral can be a really rich teacher. You go to a 4th of July cookout, you go to a you go to a party, you come home from the party, and you had a good time, and that's about it. You go to somebody's memorial service, and you inevitably begin thinking about the meaning of life, and the depth of your own soul, and your own experiences. And it's saying that, that a house party is fine and fun, but a, a memorial can be a great teacher to you. That, that looking back and, and considering the depth of things can be really where it's at. That reiterates what we keep hearing in the book of Ecclesiastes. Don't run from difficult things. Don't hide from hard things. That they're there to grow you and to give you wisdom and to stretch your soul into God-shaped ways. We would say around here sometimes, don't waste the wilderness that God has you in. So let's remember that as we continue reading. Verse 15. In my vain life, the preacher says, in my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evildoing. Be not overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So do not take to heart all the things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and the folly and the foolishness that is madness." preacher has a lot to say. And we hear him, and it just seems like, I said he's, he's kind of pouring out wisdom in buckets. 
He's discussing righteousness and wickedness. And what he ends up saying is there's no such thing as someone that's perfectly righteous. There isn't anybody who, who kind of wins at life in that way, that everyone fails. He said there's not much of a benefit either way, being, being foolish or being wise. You don't win. All perish under the sun, he said multiple times. Another preacher pointed out to me, this is for us, as modern people, this is a really clever warning about self-righteousness. That, that somehow you can be set apart by striving for the good life. As, as modern Christians, as, as people in a church on a Sunday morning, we can find ourselves striving for the good life by striving to live the good life. Does that make sense? So, so as, in, as in we think that by our good behavior and our good standards and our good beliefs and our good voting practices or whatever those things are, that maybe that's what sets us apart. That makes us holy. And the, the danger is that we start to believe that, that we start measuring our holiness and our goodness by what we do. You might say, I, I give to the poor. I don't cuss in front of the kids. I come to church sometimes. Never killed anybody. I only lie to avoid hurting people's feelings. That makes it okay. So I'm kind of good, right? Like Hitler was evil. Bin Laden, evil. But I work hard. I vote for the right people. I recycle. So I'm good. The reason that self-righteousness is hard to preach on is that everyone who really needs to hear it is just thinking, thinking of someone else that they know who needs to hear it. There's some nervous chuckles there. Man, that, that's a pretty quick turnaround. If I hadn't said that, the thing that you would have told me after the sermon, somebody, somebody would have come up and said, Pastor, can I get a link to that? So I got someone I need to send that to. Now you won't say that. You just check the website. It's there. Can, can you give me a link to that? I, need, I know someone. I, I wish they would have been here today. They were out of town. Can I make sure I get that to them? I said, yeah, yeah. Let's check in with Jesus real quick. Come on, come on with Jesus to me. Luke, Luke 18. Jesus told his next story to someone, to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their noses at the common people. Two men went up to the temple to pray, he said. One a Pharisee, the other a tax man. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, crooks, adulterers. Heaven forbid, like this tax man. I fast twice a week, tithe on all my income. And meanwhile, the tax man, slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus commented, this tax man, not the other, went home, made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you end up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself, you'll become more than yourself. That's a, that's a gut punch for good, modern, church-going folks. Like we have one, this front row is empty, so I'm going to use a fictitious person or people. We have like a good church-going couple, Right? They have well-worn Bibles. They read it cover to cover every year. They only tell you about it on Instagram sometimes. They run a business on Christian principles, and they're killing it in the marketplace. They give to charity and 20% to the church. They're attractive, 
which we all kind of like, and faithful to each other, which they also tell you about on Instagram sometimes. They have tiny matching tattoos, easily covered by clothing, in Hebrew, right? <laughs> My beloved. He volunteers at the pregnancy center. She helps build habitat homes instead of taking vacation, which she shows you on Instagram. He's got a concealed carry license for the amen he keeps in his holster for the preacher on Sunday morning. Amen, brother. When she worships, people think they hear angels singing in heaven. And the prayer of their heart is this. Thank you, Lord, that we're not like the losers and the drunkards and the cheats and the liars and the sinners out there in the world. And they're in the front row taking notes on this sermon. And all the while, we've got another couple. And they're still in the parking lot. They're arguing in the car. They haven't come in yet. They can't even manage to enter church because it's a small town and they know that people know them and that they, people also know they live together and they aren't married. They fought the whole way here over something that happened days ago. He's fuming. He didn't want to come anyway. She's crying. Not to mention they're both still a little drunk. Looks like they probably vote for the wrong side too based on that bumper sticker. Church greeters can see them from the front doors, but they don't know whether to approach them or not because it could be a domestic incident happening and maybe we shouldn't get involved. If they don't cross the street, they're not really our problem, right? They're a little afraid, to be honest. Messy people are a little scary. And he silently fumes, sitting there staring out the windshield as she, through her tears, begins to whisper, God, we are so broken and so wicked. Please forgive us. Jesus says, which one of those is right with God today? Front row, cover to cover, or never made it in, still a little drunk. There is a righteousness that kills your soul because self-righteousness creates forgetfulness. The front row people are living well, but her prayer reveals that she forgot what saved her in the first place. It, it reveals that she forgets that we've all fallen short, that we all need a rescue, that we all need a Savior. And eventually we start to believe, if we're not careful, that we've earned the grace we now enjoy, that it is our behavior that God then lavishes more grace upon us. And we start to measure ourselves on what we've done, and the problem is this. Some of us get to feeling good about ourselves and we forget the ditch we were in when we got rescued in the first place. And so we forget and become self-righteous. We stop seeking God because, well, we don't need him anymore. We're good. Others of us get to feeling shame and guilt because we can't nail every aspect of life. Because we do still fight with our spouse, because we do still carry that sin habit, because we do still fall short in these ways. And because of the sin cycle and the shame cycle and the guilt cycle, we forget, and that's the other side of self-righteousness. It's actually self-unrighteousness, where we say, well, we're not even worthy to approach because of who we are. So we stop seeking God because we assume he wouldn't want to associate with someone like me if he knew the things I thought, if he knew the things I'd done, if he knew the things. I can't bring that into God's house. Both are false constructs, and the preacher said in Ecclesiastes, he said, no one is sinless, which is, it sounds like we've said all along, this is either depressing or super hopeful. It's actually super hopeful. 
because it levels the ground, there isn't a, an arms race of goodness on display. Paul agrees in the book of Romans, chapter 3. Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are then justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. The scripture is saying no one is righteous, much less self-righteous. God sends Jesus to atone, to make up for our brokenness, to be received by faith, to then demonstrate whose righteousness? It said his, to demonstrate his righteousness. Why did God send Jesus? To demonstrate his righteousness. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. None. If you're a follower of Jesus, you believe in Jesus. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you have some special sin that you say, because of this, I must be on the outside, you're believing a lie. There's no special sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot work your way into God's favor any more than you can earn your way out of God's favor. Listen to me nicely. Jesus didn't die for what you could do for him or who you might become. Jesus didn't take the cross for what you might do for him or who you might become. Jesus is not in love with a future version of you. He's not waiting for you to get your life together. He's not waiting for you to figure it out. He's not waiting for you to get that behavior in check. He's not in love with the future version of you. Jesus takes the cross with you in your messiest. If you belong to Jesus, you are loved fully and beyond the scope of condemnation because you own a salvation powered by God's goodness, by God's righteousness, not by your own. Romans 8, chapter, uh, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He's saying this, you were condemned by your sin. Now there is no condemnation. Why? Well, you have been set free by God in Jesus from the law of sin and death. Sin and death had you condemned. You could not meet the standard of perfection. True. Heaven could not handle your sin. True. It says, for God has done, though. God has overcome death. God makes us righteous. God does it. How? Continue reading. Verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's what this says. Righteousness is required. So when we preach self-righteousness, sometimes we go into grace abuse. Sometimes we say, well, he said self-righteousness is bad. Therefore, this whole chase for righteousness is dumb, and we should just live and let grace do its thing. Here's what he's saying. Righteousness is required, but we can't quite get there. Like Ecclesiastes said, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We couldn't do it, so it says God has done it for us. 
It is beyond our common understanding of the world that this is even possible, that somebody for no reason other than their own glory would do something for us sacrificially. We live in a karmic society. We believe in karma, whether we want to admit it or not. We believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We believe that if I do something good, good will come back around. I'm going to pay it forward. You know, everybody likes to pay it forward until someone stops paying it forward, and we all kind of secretly get mad at the pay it forward person. You heard these stories? Like, oh, Chick-fil-A in, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, and for nine hours, people paid it forward, and they paid for the car behind them in line, and then somebody was like, sweet, free lunch. And they're like, but don't you want to pay it forward? And they went, no, what are you talking about? This is awesome. There's a lot of kids in that car behind me, no chance. And we're like, what are you doing? We're, we wanted to, you got you to keep going. If you did a little, you got to get a little and give a little. It's karma. We all want karma to be real when we're living the good life. Be a good person and good things will happen to you. Man, talk to anybody who's lived a while. Tried really hard to be a good person and then had not so good things happen. I don't think it works like that. Grace says no matter what you've done, God can bless you and redeem you. Grace doesn't make a lot of sense in a karmic world. And so we run from it. We run from it because grace doesn't make sense to us. A lot of us run from it because we want to earn it. And it doesn't make sense that somebody would just give it to me. A lot of us feel like we don't deserve it. So we run from it because I don't, I don't deserve this. And so we self-shame and, you know, we're whipping ourselves on the back going, I don't get that yet. I don't earn that yet. So we run. We run from grace. The thing you need to hear is you cannot outrun God's grace. And you cannot outrun God. If you are in here running... You are running because of your sin life. You are running because of your self-righteousness. You are running because of your shame. You are running because of some event outside of you that has happened in your life that has you feeling like God must be distant, and so you're just running because you're sick of it. If you're here running, you just need to know you can't outrun the God of the universe. The God who created everything with a breath, with a word, you're not going to outrun him. He might let you run for a bit. He's going, well, they're just going to learn new lessons along the way, but I mean, God's got you on the line. He's going to reel you back in when he wants to. You can't outrun God. God will chase you down. You will be overwhelmed. And this is why it's weird for somebody. Let's be honest. It's a little odd, a little uncomfortable when someone walks into a place like this on a Sunday morning and maybe they, they don't follow Jesus. They don't really know Jesus. They're just investigating Jesus. They walk in and they get a little uncomfortable because we start singing songs and then people are clapping and someone's crying three seats over and they're swaying around and they're like, this is a little, this is a little goofy, right? It doesn't make any sense. It's a little overwhelming. You're like, I'm not sure I'm ready for this because these people are, they're on something different. People are raising their hands. Like who raises their hands when people are singing? What? We're singing about a Jewish peasant from 2,000 years ago who was murdered by the Romans and his brothers, the Pharisees. And, and we're raising our hands and clapping and crying and we're talking into the air. And people walk in here and they go, this is a little spooky. It's a lot. And it's a lot for them 
until they realize we have no choice. We don't have a choice. We're overwhelmed that we've been chased down by the God of the universe. We're overwhelmed that in our worst, in our lowest, in our deepest, that God saw fit to come and rescue. God saw fit to come and redeem and renew our lives and to to dust us off and send us back out on the path. We're overwhelmed by it. And so when we sing about what he's done, we can't help ourselves. You look over, I sit in the same spot every week. And sometimes I'm a little too caught up in what's happening in a day and I can't really find myself in the worship moment. You look over, I have this, this issue and I'm glad I sit where I sit because I cry during worship a lot, but usually just out of my right eye and I don't know what that's about. I think the Lord has graced me with an ability to cry on the wall side so you guys can't see that your pastor is just an emotional mess. And so I'll just be over there and eventually I'll be like, all right, time to go back out. It's not that I'm like dealing with something every Sunday. It's that God is dealing with me every Sunday. By reminding me where I was, by reminding me of the goodness and the gifts and the overflow of grace in our lives. I'm overwhelmed. That doesn't mean you have to cry. Maybe you are a clapper. Maybe you're a silent prayer. Maybe you're dancing in the aisles. Maybe you kneel. I don't care. But there's an overwhelming sense of when God is present in your life, you cannot help but to respond. And everyone does it in their own way and everyone has their own path and God has wired you just like you. But if you can come in and coldly go through and listen to a TED talk and leave, I gotta wonder, what are we doing? See, because the preacher says there's a trap. The, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he says there's a trap in here and if we're not careful, we're, we're gonna fall into the trap. It's this, we either on one hand, forget God's love. And we forget God's grace because we think we're earning it with our good behavior. We think that we've earned our righteousness through our righteousness and that we're just going to keep on being righteous. That's one side of the trap. The other side of the trap is we forget his love and grace because we're stuck in shame and we think he can't love us because of what we've done or where we are. Narrow is the gate and few those who find it because on both sides of the road, there's a ditch. There's traps on either side of that, of that path with Jesus. One says, man, I'm good now. I earned this. You better believe I got that raise. I've been working hard for this. I've been faithful. Mm. And the other side says, you better believe I got fired. Have you seen what's on my internet? Have you seen what's in my life? Have you seen what I said to my spouse? Mm. I earned that. I earned that. And both are false constructs. Now, can God bless you? Absolutely. Can God reward you for good behavior? Absolutely. But the idea that we are earning our grace or the idea that we have shamed ourselves out of the reach of grace, both slip from the reality that the cross is the only thing that makes us right. The cross is the only thing that makes us holy. What sets you apart, that's all holiness is. Holy just means set apart. What sets you apart from anyone else on planet earth is the cross of Jesus Christ. And anything less is a false idol. Who you vote for, how much money you make, how good your behavior is, how successful your marriage is, it's all false. The only thing that sets you apart from anyone else on earth is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's what makes you good. It's what makes you right. It's what makes you holy. 
If the answer to any question about what makes you good today, what sets you apart today, if the, if the answer to that question is anything other than Jesus, you've lost the cross somewhere along the way. You are found because of what he has done. You are righteous because of what he has done. You are holy and acceptable and beautiful and saved and secured and forever sealed by the bond of his love because of what he has done. God has done it out of his great love for you. And this is what leads you to tears as you cry out for mercy. This is what leads you to shouting your praise and clapping off beat. This, if you are in this room and you have not yet made the decision to follow Jesus, this is why your pulse is quickened in the moment. Because you know it's true that there is something greater to live for, that there is something out there greater. I always say it's that pit in the bottom of your stomach when you hear the gospel and you go, ooh, I know that's right. And our heart rate raises in a way that only we know. That person next to me, they can't quite hear that it's beating faster than it was a minute ago. And that's the Holy Spirit's invitation to you to take hold of the truth that there is nothing short of the cross of Christ that can save you. And what Jesus says for you to be saved, for you to find hope in him, for you to find eternity with him, for you to know him as your savior, it simply requires for you to believe it to be true. In the moment to confess it with your mouth, the whisper of your mouth, when the music is its loudest and you go, God, I believe, that's all it takes. And he says, the Holy Spirit rushes into you in power and you live a life set apart with the Holy Spirit, the living power of God in and through you. So I'll invite Greg and the band back up. And we're going to take a bit of a reflective moment today. There's two sort of types of, of people I want to speak directly to. If you're in here and you are running from God's love because of shame or guilt, if you haven't opened your Bible in a while because you're feeling really distant because of things you've done, if you don't pray because you don't think he wants to hear from you because of the things you think, if you have disqualified yourself from life with Jesus, you cannot outrun God. He invites you in, not on the merits of what you have done, but on the merits of what he has done. So this morning, I need to invite you to stop disqualifying yourself. Stop the shame cycle. Stop the guilt cycle. He accepts you here, now, today. What he wants to invite you to do is rest in him, to take hold of him, to stop trying, and to start relying. So let him save you based on what he's done. The other person we need to talk to is the one who's forgotten God's love. Maybe you've been in church a long time and you have slowly slipped into this idea that blessing and favor come from behavior. That grace somehow correlates with good behavior and you've earned it somehow, one way or another. 
I need to invite you to stop to, to rest in nothing less than the cross. Remember the love of the Father who rescued you. Maybe remember where he rescued you from. And sometimes for some of us, that feels like a previous life, the things we were into. For some of us, that feels like the things from this morning or last night or last Thursday. And we go, man, he's still rescuing me from myself. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.